I think I think you chose very well with that theme. Well, we had like a choice of three, and you like no dubstep. I don't. I just. I don't think we can pull off dubstep. We're not cool enough for dubstep. Like um, as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think cheesy jingle suits us a lot better. It does. Hi, I'm Mark. Hi, I'm Sophie. And this is You Know What I Like, where we sit down each week and fail about something that we're unhealthily obsessed with. You know what I like? And you know what I like? Alice Alice in Wonderland! Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, or um, Alice in Wonderland as it is more commonly known, was released in um, 1865 by Macmillan Publishing. Um, it was written by Charles Dogeson, who was working under the pseudonym of Lewis Carroll. It follows a young girl named Alice Little on her adventures through the nonsensical world of Wonderland and even far beyond. Its blend of comprehensible nonsense and the way that its surreal plot played with the sense of what a narrative was struck a chord with people all over the world and it's remained in print ever since. It inspired a sequel, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, six years later, but didn't stop there. The two books have directly inspired countless TV shows, films, comics and games, but has also deeply affected how people perceived what a story could be. I found this quite a hard one. I, this was the hardest one to plan for, for me. Yeah. Only because, um, because I did it for my extended project twice, I'm a little bit like, you know when you become slightly overly familiar with something? Okay. And then, like, I became, like, a little bit sick of it after that because okay. it's just been like two years worth of in-depth analysis of this book i see so then i took like a massive break so now coming back to it i'm simultaneously like i'm really really familiar with it okay so i find it a little bit hard to know where to start to talk about it because it's just you know it's just like there's so much of it in my brain yeah um did you reach that point where you kind of started thinking um is this even good by the end of my essentially two extended projects on it i mm. fucking hated it <laughs> i was like for fuck's sake fucking man. white rabbit fucking hatter but the problem was is it, it i'd finished my second go round just when the first tim burton film was being released oh what kind of everyone was like um let's go see the film and you're like no like I'm every, never the entire this. world was like oh alice in wonderland isn't it so quirky and cool and i was like i used to think so but now i'm disillusioned it was just like this complete like foundations of my reading realities were shook and that's what school does to you it makes you hate things okay (laughs) oh god so um when did you start reading it then um i actually have two copies of the book i have um one that is the book split into two so there's an alice in wonderland and a through the looking glass which are all they have big full color page illustrations and stuff like this which is mine from when i was a child and i also have my mum's copy from when she was i'm gonna say in secondary school because it has her handwriting in the beginning that says this book belongs to which is absolutely adorable oh Oh my god it's the cutest (laughs) But um, so I used to read it when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and then um, when I became more of a teenager, it was my favourite book. It was okay. um, I just really, really like um, all the sort of visual story that it tells mm-hmm. when you read it. And so um, in sixth form, we had to do a thing called an extended project where 
you are supposed to build on the subjects that you're studying for A-levels and you're supposed to do an independent project that sort of draws them together, that's all that sort of thing. And I chose to do Alice in Wonderland and I did a English and textile combined project. But unfortunately, no one said like the specifications of what you had to do if you were doing a combined project because it turns out if you're trying to combine two subjects you have to do them like 50 50 mm. which no one told me so i did mainly a textile project yeah. with like a little bit of english to back it up and it did not go down well with the examiners <laughs> there and, was drama oh well i it just it just it did really badly and because uh... i was applying to get into uni obviously I wanted as many UCAS points as possible, which is, if you're not in the UK, UCAS points is how you qualify to get into the university of your choice. They give you like a set number. It's all very dull. But um, I was like, oh, extended project. If I could get like a decent grade on that, that's like a little bump to my UCAS points. Yeah. So I was like, and also I'm a little bit stubborn sometimes. <laughs> so I was a little bit like, fuck you, examiners. I am doing Alice in Wonderland. Even if you hate it, I am doing it again. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to do it all over again. <laughs> so I did did like my end project was I made um, a book cover book front and back cover for my hardcover copy of the book and mm. I also did this massive I wrote a bunch of essays about it looking at the hidden meanings and the effect of it on popular culture and how it's built up a visual narrative in culture and how I could use this to make my book covers and all of this stuff Wow. also I I think it was after my first attempt at the extended project i did also have an alice in wonderland birthday party where wow. i made a dress that was wonderland well I oh didn't... yeah you mentioned this before I, oh, didn't, yeah, cool. I didn't make a dress i bought a dress and then i customized it so then it i was wonderland for my party um have you got a picture of that um i do i don't know how our listeners will see this um there will be a post that um goes up alongside this episode in which case yes look down below for a picture of me in said dress or to the side or above we don't really know around where you're listening to this there will um there will be a picture on mightyville.com there'll be a picture of young sophie yes hopefully i have been a fantastic human being and i've also made a youtube video of me holding and showing said things that i made to camera which will potentially be linked below and if it's not send me angry tweets <laughs> it'll be fine <laughs> i've got four months yeah <laughs> make a whole new dress on that time yeah it'll be great <laughs> i can't fit in the one anymore because i've grown <laughs> so like an updated dress for an updated relationship with the text now that we've established my relationship with the text, what is yours? How have you experienced Alice in Wonderland in your life? So, um, for the most part, um, it's been kind of on the sidelines. So kind of because it's such this big kind of cultural thing yeah. that kind of everyone knows about, that um, I didn't really have um, much, much kind of knowledge about it beyond what kind of everyone knows. Yeah. But, like, it's always been something that I found, like, really, really interesting because of how you see um, all of these random parts of it. Um, and you don't really know kind of how they fit together to make the whole. I find it really interesting when stuff becomes part of the collective cultural consciousness. Mm -hmm. So there's that certain things which you find yourself having knowledge about, but you don't really know how you got it yeah and i think sort of everyone knows alice in wonderland 
even if they haven't read it, yeah. just because it's just there. I think it's a mixture of the fact that there are so many versions of it, mm. um, and the sense that um, there are so many like um, different parts of it that you can just kind of um, pick and choose. Um, so after um, having this kind of general knowledge of it for ages, um, I was in um, I was in Costco like a month or so ago. Good old Costco. I love Costco. <laughs> Hashtag sponsor. <laughs> Hashtag sponsor us, please. Yeah, please. I don't even have a Costco card. <laughs> I wish I could experience it. I go there all the time, please. Anyway. Um, so um, I was in Costco, and they had this range of, of classic books, where it's got this kind of, like, plasticky cover, but it's got kind of um, all quotes and stuff on the front for all the different books, and they had it there. And I was like, well, it's like um, £6 here for both books. It seemed like a nice cover. Like, I may as well just buy it. Always a sucker for a good book deal. I can yeah. empathise. I've seen the old Disney film, but I don't really um, remember much of it. I know I've seen it, but kind of, kind of beyond that, I can't really tell you much about it. It's definitely one of those films which I definitely know that I must have watched as a child. Yeah. But it wasn't one of my go-tos. I have watched it again as an adult, and I did, in the throes of my Wonderland obsession, actually teach myself to draw a lot of the characters... That's pretty cool. Uh, it's one of the only things I can draw. I can do, like, the Cheshire Cat, and I can do the Mad Hatter and stuff like this. Oh, wow. So, um, that was... I used to be very obsessed. I had, like, I had, like, Alice Wonderland-themed clothing. Oh, I forgot to say! Also, I went to Christchurch College, where, um, obviously Lewis Carroll, or Charles, however you pronounce his last name, <laughs> was a lecturer in Oxford, in specifically Christchurch College, and there's lots of little bits there which are supposed to have inspired certain aspects of the book. So um, I went there with an English teacher. She took a couple of us for like a special open day type thing. Ooh, cool. And um, we, I was just happened to be wearing my Alice in Wonderland t-shirt because I am obsessed. Whilst I was going to say, around. you just happened to be. No, literally like completely accidentally. Oh, really? like, I didn't know what part of Oxford we were going to. Oh, okay. So we were wow. going for this event. Genuinely by accident. Yeah, like genuinely by accident. I okay. just happened to be wearing it and we were in Christchurch for part of it and we went into the main hall where they had like, there's this little um, spiral staircase which is supposed to have inspired falling down the rabbit hole because the kids used to like run down it on their way to meals and stuff like this and and they fell down it a lot <laughs> i don't know <laughs> you watched kid after kid fall down the fall down this the staircase child after child like fell to their doom <laughs> <laughs> he was like i oh, know this would make a great book <laughs> but no so um that was also very cool yeah yeah pretty cool um do you know the story of um how he came up with the story yes but shall we tell it to our dear listeners um as in read the poem or or what? Oh, you could just summarise that Okay. he was friends with the Liddell's father was the um, is it the what is it when you call someone who's in charge of the college? The dean? The dean! In my Are head they... I was like deacon and I was like that's oh. not, that's <laughs> Isn't not that right. an American word though, dean? Archdean? It could be both. I don't know. Just say dean. But essentially the Liddell's father was the dean of Christchurch, and Lewis Carroll is really good with children. He loved children. He um, he actually, fun fact, uh, he was obviously a very devoted Christian, and he was a believer of the fact that 
there are certain branches of Christianity which believe in the idea of original sin, but he was the opposite, and he believed in the sort of idea of original purity almost. So he was really drawn to children because he believed that children are born without any of the corruption of the world and all this sort of thing and that they were the sort of purest form of person really because they're very innocent and you know the way a child's mind worked he just really loved so um he really liked children and he used to had a lot of and this sounds a bit dodgy when you say it now that he had a lot of child friends (laughs) but like in like I I assume an innocent fashion yeah yeah just you know he was really friendly to children because he didn't have any of his own so um because he worked at Christchurch and was friends with their father he developed a friendship with the Liddles especially Alice and so they used to do a lot of stuff together so they were out on the lake rowing and um Alice and her sister were a bit bored and asked for a story and then he started telling this tale and thus Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was born. Um, does your version of the book have the poem at the beginning? Uh, one of, of this them Because kind of, um, when I read that, yes. um, I didn't really know what it was. All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. Yeah. 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 I really like that poem. Because yeah. kind of, you kind of start to realise as you read it, like, um, what it's saying to you. And then you've got, um, a few lines about how kind of the kind of younger sister keeps butting in. And how kind of everyone's getting involved with the story. Yeah. And it kind of sets this really nice scene. My edition actually has before that. My I have um the edition that I reread is a puffin edition where they're both bound together. And yeah. um before you actually get to the poem, you have a section called How the Story Was Told, which tells you about it in a narrative sense, and okay. then you have the poem, so it gives like a prior explanation to the poem. Okay, cool. So I can imagine it must be interesting to not have that and to just sort of dive straight in with a poem. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, what I liked about the way that the story is written, though, is that um, it's got a bunch of little stuff in brackets. Yeah. So, like, it reads like it's being told as a story. Yeah. So you really get that sense that, like, um, it was told as a story originally because kind of he keeps kind of butting in over himself with kind of small bits of information and it's just... Yeah, there's little aside because obviously a lot of it is you are, it's a third person narration, but it's, you're experiencing it sort of through Alice. So then those little add-ons by the narrator that go directly to you sort of break that a little bit and bring you in a little bit more, I think. Um, I wasn't sure um, if I liked it or not. Like, because it does definitely um, take you out of the fact that um, this story is happening now. Because it, like, it really feels like you are being, like, told, a, like, a fake story. I quite liked it because I felt like it added to the childish air. So, you know, like, if your parent sits down and reads you a story, and sometimes if you're a kid you might interrupt with questions, or that sort of thing. So it sort of reminded me a little bit of that. Oh, I had a thought, Mm. and it's not really a thought, because I'm quite familiar with the plot, a lot of the stuff I was thinking about when I was reading this was not actually, oh, this is happening, it was, oh, I wonder what would have happened if this happened, or I wonder about the backstory to this. So one of my questions that I had was, what is the white rabbit doing in our world? Because obviously... 
um, the way that it, Alice gets into Wonderland is that she spots the white rabbit and she sees him go into this hole and then she follows him. Mm. And just my question is, why was he there? Well, um, I've recently watched the um, Tim Burton film again. Um, I bought it on Blu-ray. And all I can think of now is the reason why he's there in that film. I should say that I haven't seen it, but you can spoil it for me. I would really watch that film. Oh, the only <laughs> the only reason, as previously established, the only reason I haven't seen the Tim Burton film is because when it was released, I was in the yeah. throes of my, oh God, no more Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> please and thank you, stage. <laughs> so it's just not something I've actually got round to yet. Okay. I would. It is really, really good. Okay, but does it yeah. give a sort of explanation for... Um, because the film is set um, when she's like um, 16 or 17, maybe. Okay. So it's him coming back to get her um, and bring her back to Wonderland to okay. stop the Red Queen. Well, because I quite like... I know um, at the end of the book it's that idea where it's sort of like all a dream because she's woken up on the bank again and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I quite like the idea that there's a sort of back and forth between Wonderland and our world. Mm. Because also when Alice is in Wonderland um, and the White Rabbit does spot her, he calls her... I think it's Marianne or oh, really? Mary okay. something like he mistakes her for his servant uh, so okay. in my head I'm like is there if you talk like parallel realities or whatever like is this a- another version of a world and there's another version of an Alice but she's like a Marianne here I, ooh, I really like that I really like kind of parallel worlds yeah I just think yeah. it's really just like a really cool little thought process sort yeah. of well, um, um, so kind of in this world, she goes down the rabbit hole and she falls into, like, a different life. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Or, you know, because obviously our Alice, who we follow, falls into Wonderland. What if at the same time, Marianne, the, real, the reason that Marianne isn't there is because she's gone for a jaunt in our world instead or something? So um, are you saying that um, the Alice that we see at the end is Marianne? So kind of they trade places almost. I don't know, because this is not something I'd really thought out until we started talking about it just now. Mm. <laughs> but, um, it could be. I just quite liked how there were just, there's a possibility to hypothesise about where has the white rabbit come from? Who is yeah. Maryam? Like, could there be an interpretation where you could do a reimagining where there's some sort of parallel universe type thing? I don't know. I think it could be because kind of um, everyone's very accepting of the fact that 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 she's there. Yeah. Kind of because um, there aren't many um, human humans in Wonderland, and kind of everyone sees her and is like, "Oh, hey, how you doing?" Yeah. <laughs> that you could easily watch it as they know this version of her. Yeah. Like who has always been there? Because kind of when she first gets there, and the white rabbit gives her his gloves and his his something else. Oh, his gloves and his fan. Yeah. Yeah, that's So kind of that implies that like um he does know who she is. Well because that's when he first calls her Mary Ann. Oh, okay, because he, yeah. he asks what she's doing away from the house and he's mm-hmm. like hurry on back etc etc yeah. which is when I cuz this time I was reading it and I'd already thought I wonder where where he's been. But yeah. then I was like, "Oh, you know, what if?" Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things like about it. these worlds is because they are quite nonsensical and Mm -hmm. you can talk a lot and I'm sure we will talk a bit about like oh maybe this is inspired by this blah 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 but Mm -hmm. because they are so sort of 
there's a lack of meaning sometimes because sometimes it is just nonsense yeah it sort of gives you the reader that ability to pick up on whatever you want to pick up on and you can create your own reading of it and you can speculate about this that and the other and come up with ideas and sort of reimagine it a bit differently each time depending on sort of what you look for or what you pick up on that particular reading and stuff like that i quite like that yeah um do you think that's why it's become like such like a kind of ingrained thing in our culture because of the way that you can like read um like read the same scene in like um in so many different ways and kind of like um put it in a different context and kind of like read it in a certain way i think so i think it's that thing where the best children's books are ones that you can read as an adult and you still love a good mm. children's book it doesn't matter what age you are it's still a good book but also they can give you different things at different points in your life so you can see how a child would read this and it's just you know there's all these silly nonsense things happening and it's very light and entertaining and it captures mm -hmm. your imagination and then as you grow up you're able to read different things into it and draw upon different aspects of it and I think it sort of texts are informed by their readers and you in some ways make the text because of the attitude you bring towards it when you read it so i think that's one of the reasons why it's got such a wide appeal is that a lot of different people can read it and they might take away different things but they're all still enjoying it yeah yeah um what i was trying to do when i was reading through the first book is kind of i always thought the um because of what I know about the stuff that it's inspired, that I thought that um the whole of Wonderland um was kind of known to be this kind of like representation of stuff in in her life. So kind of it's all like a metaphor for stuff that um she's going through or has gone through. Oh, is that um there's that computer game, isn't there? Where it's all yeah. it's all in her mind and she's gone a bit mad because someone died or something yeah so you've got um there's two games um there's one called um american mcgee's alex oh yes i looked at that in my extended project <laughs> i looked at all of the adaptations <laughs> um the game it's set like um 10 years after the book and she's just um, lost her whole family in a house fire. Oh, yeah. So she's in this kind of psychiatrist office and she keeps kind of going um, back and forth between, like, real life um, and Wonderland. Yeah. But because um, her mental state is so kind of degraded at that point, that kind of Wonderland is kind of trying to attack her. So kind of it's become this, this way of um, her mind just kind of blaming her for everything and kind of wanting so kind of she's trying to get back into this thing that the um she was and liked as a child yeah but kind of she's gone past that point in her life so she can't go back there anymore oh. but she keeps like trying to go back there that sounds really interesting yeah that sort of rem reminds me a bit i know a contemporary of lewis carroll's was uh c.s lewis who did narnia and i know there's a lot of contention about in the Narnia fandom, of which I am a part of, about the narrative choices of who is allowed to return to Narnia and why. Namely, mm. that Susan isn't. Yeah. So, I think that's a really interesting idea to explore if you are a child, and if 
in the world of the book you are a child who's gone to this other land and then returned to your normal life what happens if you then try and go back i think that's quite interesting um i don't think it's more about the fact that she's not a child anymore oh it's just more the fact that she's gone a bit what kind of it's the fact that um this whole world represents the innocence that she had as a child yeah um, and she's lost that. Yeah. So she can't really, like, um, gel with that world anymore. Okay, that sounds really cool. Yeah. I haven't played it, but I've, like... I did I did look at it a little bit, but I didn't really look at the plot. I looked at um, the visual style, mm. because obviously I was trying to inform a textile project, so I looked, yeah. I looked a lot about the visual legacy. Mm-hmm. So I remember okay. what it looked like, but I didn't really know any of the plot. Yeah. Um, so that's how I read the first book, where kind of um, everything means something in her life. Okay, that's interesting. But kind of, I came out of it and kind of read stuff online about it afterwards. And like, um, I was really surprised that um, there wasn't much about what it all means in the context of her life, because I thought that um, that's what both books were about. But like, um, I've come to realise that it's a bit more than that. I think... And you could disagree with me on this. I think there are a lot of stuff that you can read into it, but I do think sometimes you have to read a text and acknowledge that sometimes it's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't always have to have a meaning behind it. Because I think if you try and explain away everything in the two books, then you won't really get anywhere, because I think there's some stuff in it which is just him being a bit nonsensical. Yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of collapsed a bit, um, definitely um, in the second book, because a lot of that book is just like, what the hell am I reading? I have like, I have no clue what's happening. See, this is going to be one of the questions I asked you, was going to be, which one do you prefer? Because I go between the two, but I actually really like Through the Looking Glass. I like it in the sense that it's really, really weird. Yeah. Like, it kind of doesn't really follow any kind of rules. Because the first one's got this whole structure of her kind of, like, um, wandering around Wonderland, if you will. Well, she's playing a chess game. Um, If it's... My edition of the book has the chess problem that Mm. he was working out. And if you follow the moves that she makes, then it follows... If you play it out on the board as it's set up in the start of the book, that's how she wins the game of chess. Okay, I didn't know that. So each one is... um, that's why I feel like the transitions seem a bit strange because it's yeah. sort of like it, they each episode sort of ends a bit hurriedly and there's a lot of like you know the darkness sweeps in and that sort of thing hmm. but that's because she's defeated the foe if you will okay. and that's not necessarily in an active fighting sense but it's that she's solved whatever the issue was or whatever so yeah. each incident is her advancing and each character that she meets is a different chess piece so you have obvious ones like the knight is a knight but then Mm. some of the other ones are also characters and stuff yeah i did like that it had like a real sense of kind of being broken up into um kind of different sections Mm. because you've got um chapters in both books obviously yeah but like um it really did um because it was such an abrupt jump between um different different squares that you really got a sense that she was actually like um trying to move forward um even if you didn't really understand like um where she was trying to get to yeah so you had like um on one of the first ones when she goes um over a brook and she ends up on the train and you're like what the hell yeah what? 
um, it's such an abrupt thing that happens that you just get a bit like you kind of have to either adapt quickly um, or it's not going to be for you. Yeah, I think uh, Wonderland is probably much easier to, it's much more accessible on yeah, a first definitely. read. And I think my love of Looking Glass has come from the rereads I've done rather than necessarily my first experience of it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's why most most adaptations um, take the plot of Wonderland and kind of um, add in kind of aspects of Through the Looking Glass? Yeah, I think if you're if you're adapting something, then obviously you have to make cuts and edits and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that accessibility of Wonderland is definitely an appeal to an adapter but then there are there are so many little interesting aspects of looking glass that i can understand why people have a tendency to sort of smush them together a little bit yeah because it would be a shame to miss out on some of the fantastic things in the second one just because it's a little less easy to necessarily grasp initially yeah yeah a lot of both books um you don't really know from other kind of media so you've got a lot of scenes that um, don't really um, make it into most kind of versions of the book. Yeah. So, um, so you've got stuff like um, from the start um, of the first book. So you've got the whole sequence with the um, doors and the table and the key and the kind of shrinking up and down that kind of makes it into, I think, all of the versions that I've seen. So kind of she always goes down the hole. She always finds that room with all the doors. She finds the small door. She gets the key and she kind of goes up and down a bit with the, the um, 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 with the kind of drink me yeah. drink and the food under the table so kind of most versions um have that in um but um but then you've got stuff like um her growing and crying and kind of like um um flooding the whole tunnel that kind of makes it into some and then kind of um, as you go through the next um two chapters with the um caucus yeah the race, caucus race so that's in the the um, Disney film, is it? Um, I is haven't it? rewatched the Disney film in a long time. I think there's a little bit of it. I think they're I think they're already like dancing or something when she comes across them, and it's just quite a brief part because it's quite long in the book. But I think it's quite short. Yeah, it's a really really long chapter that like um, I didn't really get. Like I mean, it was a lot of kind of kind of it seemed to have the message of um just enjoy what you're doing without kind of worrying too much about the rules and that makes sense to be in a story that he's telling to like a young child because of young children being like bad at losing (laughs) (laughs) as i was and still am to a degree um if you ask most people but um that's a good thing to get from it but kind of beyond that um i couldn't really get much from from that whole sequence it was just it went down the route of being a bit too weird that I didn't get. I think I didn't really, even in my readings as like a child and stuff, I didn't really read a lot of um, morals into either mm. book. Yeah. I sort of, I think I've always taken them as, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 80% sure that this is the right person I'm talking about. I'm pretty sure it's um, Lewis Carroll who didn't like C.S. Lewis because the Narnia books are obviously they have quite a strong Christian moral message. Yeah. And I'm I'm about eighty percent sure that Lewis Carroll is the right person who I'm talking about right now. But mm-hmm. he didn't like that and he just wanted to write a book for children. So I don't think he was I can see that. I don't think he was necessarily looking to impart any form of moral. And I think it's more just a 
because he delights in the innocence and the company of children so then he just wants to entertain them with a a silly tale yeah like um um i'm not saying that kind of he went into it with this whole kind of like um subtle metaphor yeah but kind of you can imagine um as he's telling the story um him being like and then they just ran around in circles and had fun because um, (laughs) is that like what they do at sports days nowadays when it's like everyone's a winner yeah um kind of you can imagine him saying it with that attitude And so Alice said, what are the rules? And the dodo said, the rules don't matter, just have fun. <laughs> like a, we could do like a reinterpretation of the caucus race as like a little um, TV advert for children. Remember kids, it's the taking part that counts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this sounds like it's something from the 40s or something. Yeah, like a really vintage TV like thing. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly we're, yeah. I was going to say ahead of our time, then I was like, no, it's the absolute opposite. <laughs> Time has passed us by. Ahead of our time in the 40s. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if time travel happens, we'll go back and we'll make a killing. Um, And then she has that whole sequence in the White Rabbit's house. Yeah. Like, where she just grows and grows. And I feel like, um, I feel like um, the only thing that um, he was trying to do with that, um, like, um, is just make her wear a house. <laughs> like, um, I can't really think of anything else that he's doing. It does give you the delightful visual that's in the Disney film of her with arms and legs poking out of the house. Yeah, um, that's all I'm thinking. The kind of, um, he wrote that scene to just be silly. Like, it really does, like, sell that side of it. It's one of the reasons why I actually really like these is the, um, and why I think they're quite well adapted to visual retellings because mm-hmm. there is there are so many wonderful visual moments in it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then after that, you've got the scene that I think um, cemented the whole of the um, Disney film as being about drugs. <laughs> the caterpillar on the mushroom yeah. with the hoop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you've got the whole um him blowing the smoke in her face, and then the kind of who are you? Who are you? Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, um, and then she kind of eats the mushroom, and then she like um sees all the the kind of flowers singing, and it's just well that yeah that's the Disney film interpretation. <laughs> yeah, everything is about drugs. She's quite sensible in the book. She's like a nibble here and a nibble there. Um, one thing that I thought was um was kind of weird about her in the book is that um she reads as very kind of unstable i'm not sure if that's how kids are (laughs) but like she talks to herself a lot to be fair i talk to myself literally all the time when i'm not around people um i do too (laughs) but like um it's the fact that that kind of she kind of um has conversations with herself like um to a degree that i don't think many people do um and then she'll say something like realize it's wrong then kind of like um punch herself in the ear like no bad alice he says at one point doesn't he that she was really fond of having arguments with herself and had been yeah. known to try and box herself in the ears when she yeah. had been wrong before yeah um that's the whole line where i'm like okay okay alice i think from a narrative viewpoint it makes sense because you 
it's that stating the obvious thing for your audience, isn't it? But then if you just took it very literally, it's very strange to just have yeah. a child wandering around the place just having arguments with themselves constantly. <laughs> yeah, because like, um, um, in comics and stuff, you've got the whole thought bubbles and like yeah. um, caption boxes and stuff that you can use to kind of um, tell the whole small bits of story to people. I guess because everyone that she encounters in Wonderland is so nonsensical in order for there to be sort of in another world you'd have this book where two people fall down and they can talk to each other whereas she doesn't have anyone that's not completely nonsensical to interact with so she has to become that person for herself for the narrative to work for us yeah it's true yeah because we need someone to be verbalizing these thoughts and the sort of what the hell is going on type yeah. narrative like what the fuck was that we need someone to be expressing that because otherwise that's <laughs> that would just be us we'd be it's like true. this makes no sense what the hell is happening yeah it's true yeah so like it seems a bit weird if you think about it in a literal sense but like from a narrative point of view it was quite a good idea on his part i think yeah um, but kind of for me, it did come back to the fact that kind of um, I was reading it from the sense of um, her going slightly mad. <laughs> We're all mad here. Yes, um, that's how I was reading that as kind of like um, confirmation of the fact that kind of she was a bit kind of strange from the beginning. Okay, so you were reading this and you were like, yes, this confirms everything. Yeah, I'm sure it's a bit of um, confirmation bias that I was reading it, with, <laughs> but yeah. Interesting. Um, there was one scene with the pig and the pepper. Oh, the pig and the pepper. Yeah, um, that I couldn't not read um, as some kind of um, allegorical representation of um, something in her real life. In what way? So because you've got the um, duchess and the baby at first. Yeah. So she's in that room with the chef who's making a soup or something in a big pot and there's kind of pepper, pepper in the air everywhere. And um, the baby is kind of doing lots of sneezing and sneezing and sneezing, and and the Duchess is like, "Oh, what are you doing? You're being annoying!" <laughs> and kind of shaking the baby like way too much. And then she sings a lullaby to the baby that's really, really creepy. Oh yeah, the one where it's like, "Beat your baby when they sneeze. They're only doing it to piss you off." Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, speak roughly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes. He only does it to annoy um because he knows it teases. Um, and to me, I can't read that as anything but Alice in her life. She um, had an experience where she met um, this woman and her baby, where the mother abused the baby and kind of read its crying and its moaning as it just being annoying because... So kind of the pepper is like, um, is a metaphor for... Um, for the baby, um, seeming to get annoyed by the very air around it. Okay, so you went, you went like way deep and way serious. Yeah, like <laughs> um, that's how I read it. Like I, f- I couldn't read it any other way. I feel like because of this computer game, you've come in with a much more. I don't want to say a darker th- view of the world. Yeah, you've got because because I think because my primary first experience of it was as a child and you know when mm. you're a kid you sort of just take things at face value yeah. so in my head of I'm, like, there's a pig. I'm like oh it's just so nonsensical like this makes no <laughs> sense there's no meaning here and you're just like but what if yeah. i love it it's like this complete like polar view but it's really interesting because i never would have thought of that really yeah like, like uh, i can't read it any other way in my head it was just about 
I think I'd look at the pig transforming just to sort of highlight the stupidity of the whole of the Duchess and that moment. The fact that she's just like got this thing that she thinks is a baby and it's a pig. Mm. I don't know, like Well, um, I've got a whole reason for that as well. Okay, tell me your reason. So, um, it turns into a pig when she gets it because um because she's a child, she wouldn't know what to do with the baby, um um even if she did did save it from the mother. She was thinking that, wasn't she? She was like, Shit, if this is a baby, what am I supposed to do with it? Can I just yeah. leave it somewhere? Yeah, so kind of, she kind of, in this world, she finally saves the baby. But she's like, well, now I have a baby. We're like, what do I do with the baby? And then it's just like, oh, it's a pig. It's fine. Okay, fine. Never mind. So she's like symbolically closing this psychological wound. And then because it's dealt with, it just sort of turns into a pig and runs away. Yeah. um, (laughs) um, It's kind of like um, an episode of Dollhouse called like um, Fulfillment. Oh, yeah. Something like that. Um, Where they each have their own like, um, goal in life. Yeah, they're going through the goal and then it turns out it's all orchestrated for them to... Um, as soon as they get their wish, they fall asleep. Yeah. So kind of that's how I'm, like, reading um, her saving the pig. She's like, oh, yay, all done. Yeah, that's done now. We can carry yeah. on. Yeah. Um, oh, something that I've always found really interesting. A question that I've always wondered about that is just pure wondering on my part mm-hmm. is what do you think would have happened if Alice had not had the kerfuffle with the eat me, drink me, and she'd logically figured it out, and she just straight away got the key and gone into the garden. Also, sub-question, do you think that garden is the gardens of the Red Queen? Um, don't we know that it is? Queen of Hearts, sorry, not the Red Queen. Well, because sorry. that that was my <laughs> that was my question, is is that the direct door to the Queen of Hearts' palace? Is that what those gardens are? And do you, what do you think would have happened if she'd just gone straight in um i read it as her just kind of doing a big kind of loop so like um um because of the way the um um wonderland is laid out the cheshire cat says um something like so kind of him and alice have a back and forth she asks him um would you tell me please which way i ought to go from here oh and then he says well where are you trying to go and she's like i don't know and he's like well it doesn't matter yeah so then um, he says at the end, oh, you're sure to do that if you only walk long enough. So the fact that because it's so like um, laid out in a way that makes no sense, like she just kind of does a big loop-de-loop and kind of um, ends up back where she started. Yeah. Okay, that would make sense. Um, so I think that if she went through the door straight away, um, she wouldn't have had the um, bonding experience with the cat or with the duchess. So she wouldn't have known them at the party. So I guess um, it would have just been a different stop. I don't think she'd have stayed there for as long. So like she needed to build up to conf- the confronting them all. Yeah. And then the sort of, you're nothing but a silly deck of cards. Yeah, because um, kind of that's where um, everyone comes together again. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's just that thing where I think when I was a child, I didn't make the logic connection that where the door leads is the Queen of Hearts' place. And I think I always just wondered, like, oh, I wonder what the garden was. Yeah. I don't know, like, I imagine it was, like, some party garden or something. You know, like, she had this really, like, crazy journey, but if she'd just gone through the door, she would have been in, like, this little... She would have been home all along. Well, it would have been, like, a little paradise garden or something. Uh, I don't know. So, kind of, it's like a test, and she failed the test. Yeah, like, she didn't get in to that bit, so she had to go on this crazy journey instead. Maybe she wasn't worth it yet. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. 
My other question, and it's not really a question, it's just one of the things that I like, mm. is I really like in Looking Glass, I really like the Red King and that whole thing about him being asleep and dreaming and about how, um, is it Tweedledum and Tweedledee who say that he's dreaming you? Yeah, and it it's, is, yeah. Um, and then at the end, she brings it up again, and she's like, well, who's dreaming who? Was she... She's woken up, technically, so was she dreaming the Red King, but then was the Red King dreaming her? And I just really liked that whole little tiny subplot of what is reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that did make me think of um, a Zelda game on the Game Boy, where kind of um, Link finds himself on this island. The um, There's this big this big egg on a mountain. You're told that um, when you wake up, the wind fish in this egg. I'm saying this now and it sounds like really, really kind of Alice in Wonderland expired. Because it's just <laughs> like, it's so nonsense. Um, that when when you wake up the wind fish, um, he's dreaming this island. Okay, because that really reminds me of, and either in some genuine form of mythology that exists in our world, there is a figure in some form of cultural mythology where it is that they're dreaming the universe. Or there's a small chance that I'm remembering it from a Terry Pratchett book. <laughs> I'm sure it's both. What is reality, really? <laughs> but yeah. I really... I just found that was one of the main things that captured me in Looking Glass was sort of that whole who is dreaming who. Because also, when I was younger, I went to see a stage version of the looking glass mm. and they did obviously they edited it slightly for stage but they did include that bit and i just found it really interesting some of the ways that they'd staged it and i don't know i just thought it was really cool captured yeah. my brain i do like the idea of it all being somebody else's dream because it was her dream in the first part yeah so i liked that the tables might be turned well, um, the first one feels like a dream. The second one definitely feels like she's playing around. Yeah. It feels like she's walking around her house and kind of walking around the garden and kind of down the street yeah. to the shop and stuff. And she kind of like um, puts all of these um, different people in the place of kind of everything she meets. Yeah. So kind of it um, definitely feels more like um, her pretending than the first book does. Yeah. Do you know um, how he came up with the idea of the looking glass element. I know. Because my book has a little description and okay. um, it was while he was in London um, he was in Kensington Square and he was watching a little group of kids playing and then one of them called out Alice and so he called this girl over because her name was Alice and um, then he, they were like stood in front of a mirror and he put an orange in her hand and he was like, what hand are you holding it in? My right hand. And then look in the glass over there. What hand is she holding the orange in? And she was like, in her left hand. And he asked her to explain it. And so she was like, if I was on the other side of the glass, if I'd climbed into the glass, then I'd still be holding it in my right hand because I'd be in the glass. And then he was like, oh, I'm going to make a make-believe book about a girl who climbs through a looking glass. And then everything's backwards. I think that works really well. Because kind of, I think we've all at some point um had the thought like um um what if I went in this mirror? Hmm. I did at least you might not. Oh have, no, I did. I did. Like we used to, yeah. we used to have, we used to refer to it as the girl in the mirror rather than me because I had like imaginative parents. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they were like, let's go see the girl in the mirror. <laughs> it's just me. 
Just the other way around. I think it might be in a way that they used to keep me occupied as a child. <laughs> Here's a mirror. Ooh. Yeah, like, ooh, who is this? It's you, Sophie. Yeah. It's just you. A year later, they'd be like, um, Sophie, we have something to tell you. Yeah. This is you. Mirrors are not a separate world. No, I, it wasn't like that. It was just like, girl in the mirror versus, I don't know. It, does, it doesn't make it, doesn't sound good when I explain it. No, no, it does. But, you know, you have the same. Let's hope the yeah. listeners did too. I did like um, how she starts um, talking about the fact that um, she wants to see um, what she couldn't see in the mirror. Yeah. Like, from her side of it. Yeah. Because kind of that really does set off your whole, like, huh. Like, what if it was real? Yeah. Then you couldn't see any of this stuff. Yeah. I also liked how he does... It's not just, oh, she's gone through the looking glass and that's just how he gets her to this place. I like how, you know, in order to move forwards, you have to go backwards and all of the writing is the wrong way around because it's the looking glass world. And I like, I feel like that was the cause of some of the nonsense is just because it literally is backwards. Yeah. And I just, I thought it was good that he kept that up. I was going to say, say the opposite, actually. Ah, um, after she gets outside, it sort of just becomes the chess game, I thought. What do you mean outside? Oh, outside of the house? Yeah, because kind of she starts, she goes through the mirror, she kind of looks around the room, she sees the um, chess pieces on the chessboard and kind of... Well, because, for example, uh, with the first queen that she meets at their first meeting, they have yeah. to run really, really fast in order to stay in place. And there's a lot of... Um, there's the other, the white queen who experiences time backwards. So she gets the, she screams because she's pricked her finger. And then afterwards she pricks her finger. And that was really cool. there's a couple of moments of um, things happening backwards. So if they, if she wants to cut the pudding, she has to hand the pudding around first and then cut the plate where the pudding was. Okay. So like lots and lots of the stuff, which just sort of seem like general nonsense when you mm. actually look at them, you're like, oh yeah, this is happening backwards because she's okay. in Looking Glass Land. Okay. I'll believe you. I take it back. <laughs> take it back. <laughs> take it back now, <laughs> y'all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Cha-cha slide. slide. to the left. Always good time. Oh my god, that works. Does that work? Slide to the left? You know, like chess? Yeah, slide to slide the right. Slide to the right. Take it back. Yeah. Crisscross. <laughs> no. We're just trying it to apply the cha-cha cross. slide to chess. <laughs> <laughs> quality content here adapting um pop songs to really old classic books <laughs> so um how does we are who we are by kesha a map on to lay miz <laughs> for a moment i didn't know if you were doing the who are you again who are you who are like you? essentially we need to get the caterpillar to do a remix of kesha <laughs> that's what i'm getting from this that's a life goal yeah. <laughs> um, different interpretations of the book deal with the different relationships in it in different ways. Um, so, for example, um, Alice and the Hatter um, in the book um, don't really have that friendly relationship. Like, no. the whole time, um, he's kind of being a bit kind of antagonistic towards her. Yeah. Um, he kind of doesn't really seem to like her very much. Like, she's kind of a bit of an annoyance. Yeah. Um, but then kind of in the um, Tim Burton film, um, they're like best friends oh, okay. in the universe. So kind of the main plot of the first film, um, once the Hatter appears, like um, he becomes 
this kind of driving force for the plot. Um, most things that Alice does is because of the Hatter. So either she's trying to kind of save him from someone, or the fact that um, she's trying to um, do something he said. And then um, in this upcoming film, um, he seems to be even more of the focus. Like, um, um, their whole friendship seems to be the whole kind of driving force of that film as well. First of all, I would say, is this because it's Johnny Depp? And yeah. Tim Burton and Johnny Depp literally just have, I don't want to say like a bromance because I feel cringy when I use that word. Yeah. But you know, like Tim Burton always cast Johnny Depp as like a main character. Mm. It's his career now. Yeah. Like partly that, but also I feel like I can understand the narrative decision because if you go back to what we were saying before about Alice's talking to herself, mm-hmm. you need there to be, for a film, you need there to be more than one character that you can sort of that makes sense okay yeah you know like because because in the book it is dealing with a lot of antagonistic people but also a lot just a lot of like nonsensey stuff that doesn't really have much plot drive to it sort Mm -hmm. of it's sort of like a number of incidents especially in the second one yeah so if you're adapting it to film you need to have a cast of characters rather than just one person interacting in episodes with other people if that yeah. makes sense yeah so like it she needs someone again she needs someone to talk to it's a bit weird to have a whole film where your main character only talks to themselves yeah so it would make sense to want to pick out characters and flesh them out more and i think the hatter is one of the most visually iconic characters in the series so i can sort of understand that decision to then build upon the hatter and make him more of a driving character so then you actually can form relationships with Alice between people because she doesn't really have relationships with anyone in these books they're not lasting in any way it's just she's met this person she interacts with this person she thinks they're very weird she goes on her way like you need yeah you need to have more emotional substance if you're going to adapt it especially for a blockbuster film so then I guess my question is, um, why the Hatter? Um, why not the cat, for instance? I mean, I haven't seen the film, so I don't know what role the cat has in the film. Um, it's the is same he as voiced the book, by really. Stephen Fry? He is voiced by Stephen Fry. I guess because the appeal of the Cheshire cat is partly the mystery and the elusiveness of him. Okay. You know, like, he appears and disappears, and he sort of is a slightly wiser figure than the mm-hmm. rest of them. He doesn't... He is a little bit nonsensical, but he is in some way a guide to Alice. Yeah, um, he seems aware of the world that, that he's in. Yeah, aware of the workings of it more than the other characters are, yeah. who are sort of subject to the randomness. Okay. So in a way, it would be difficult to make that the founding relationship, if you will, mm-hmm. that the viewers connect to, because it's not really one of equals it's sort of one of more of like a sage wise figure who sort of pops in and then pops out again and you need someone who's on alice's level sort of it's really weird that you say that because um in the game um the cat is the one who serves as the game's guide who kind of butts in every now and then and says like um do you know that you can push like space to jump yeah that seems like a good decision yeah okay that makes sense. I really, I really like analysing, interpreting things in different mediums. I find that quite interesting. You know, when you look at 
how has someone gone about adapting a book into a film yeah i just think it's really interesting what people leave out or what they build on well um the um tim burton film um it deals with um the randomness and the kind of nonsensicalness of the book um and kind of makes it into a plot that actually makes sense yeah that's what i like about it so much the kind of it um doesn't just do a bunch of weird events in sequence like it kind of turns them into like an actual plot yeah um do you know what the plot is of the film she okay right I'm assuming the re- the Queen of Hearts is still a foe because she's played by Helena Bonham Carter, which means she's also one of the main characters. Mm-hmm. And she sort of looks like she's modelled on Elizabeth I a little bit. And I know that she has to fight the Jabberwocky. Yeah. Um, That's all I know. Okay. Um, so the whole plot is framed as um, Alice being brought back to Wonderland by the White Rabbit. Okay. To kind of depose the Red Queen. Queen of Hearts. Um, it's both. Yeah. Uh, okay. So does are they? Because well, kind of. Um, I did read that in most adaptations, they kind of merge the two characters together. Okay. Cool. Like, um, she's called the Red Queen. Okay. And the Queen That's of Hearts. I, just, I guess. Just yeah. Wondering because I again, how many times can I say it? I have not seen the film. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's framed as her coming back to kill the Jabberwocky and um give the crown back to the White Queen. Who's played okay. by um, Anne Hathaway? Anne Hathaway in it, yeah. Yeah, but like it's all framed using these words that don't quite make sense. Like they're not real words, but kind of because of their context, you can understand what's going on in the film. So that's like a good kind of representation of the fact that he's managed to um, take all these like bits and pieces and make something that makes sense. So, like with the Jabberwocky, you're like. When you actually think about it, you're like, what does Gyre and Gimbal mean? But in the context of the poem, you're like, yeah, Gyre and Gimbal. Yeah. It's fine. So kind of from from the poem in the book, you can read the poem and um, like Alice does, she kind of gets like a vague, like someone is fighting something and killed something. Yeah. So you can kind of get that from context. But what um, Tim Burton does is like, um, so um, this whole thing's going to happen on the Frabjous Day. Yeah. So kind of because they keep saying Frabjous Day, you don't really need to know what it means. Yeah. You just know that it's something that is. Okay. I think that's quite interesting. Yes, yeah, kind of um I kept coming back to um to the book A Clockwork Orange, if you've read that. I haven't read it. I've seen the film, but I haven't read the book. Okay. So um in that film they've got a bunch of kind of made up words and language. Yeah. So kind of, um, as you go through, you kind of start to learn what the words mean, um, just based on how they're used. Yeah, like in 1984, they have that as well. They have, um, I think it's Newspeak. Yeah. Where it's, you know, language is changed, and they don't really explain it, but you just pick it up in the context that it's in. Yeah, I really like that in fiction. It sort of doesn't hold your hand too much. I really, I really love how language is played with in this. Um, also, it was really on the subject of the Jabberwocky, um, I did this poem in a seminar when I was at uni because we were talking about language and how, again, you pick up the cues from, based in, like, how the thing is written. Even if you don't know the words, you can gather their meaning from the context they're in. Yeah. So we were doing it with that. And it was really interesting because my seminar leader proposed this way of reading the Jabberwocky that turns it on its head. 
So, obviously, we read the Jabberwocky and we're like, oh yeah, there's this massive monster and this dude comes along and he, like, slays it really cool and all stuff like this. The Warful Sword. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, um, because we don't know what a lot of these words mean, she was proposing the idea that you could read it completely differently, where you read it and when you actually look at how the Jabberwocky is described, she's like, oh, it burbled and it came whiffling and Mm -hmm. all stuff like this. And her whole thing was... You can read it how, like, the dominant reading. Or there's this subversive reading where you read it and actually the Jabberwocky is, like, this really harmless, innocent thing. Oh, that no. just, you know, like, it's, it's like, burbling along, it's whiffling as it goes. <laughs> it's just, like, you know, like, pootling about. All The only thing we know about it that could be, it's got, it's got a mouth and it's got claws that catches things. Like, it could be a bird. Yes, yeah, true. And she was like, you could read this, as in it's this really harmless little thing, and this guy with a sword has just wanted to prove himself, and he's just like... And it flips it, and it's like, the guy is actually the villain of this, because mm. he's killing this poor, innocent creature. And it was all about how you read a lot, you assume a lot when you read things, and you mm. assume a lot about language, and what happens if you take a step back and reverse that and that sort of thing and I was just yeah. it was just a reading that stuck I with me like and that, now yeah. I always feel a little bit bad for the Jabberwocky <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh poor Jabberwocky he's just waffling I <laughs> 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 just anyway um, have you seen the um, Bandersnatch um, in any version the Fruminous Bandersnatch oh yeah yes I've never seen a Fruminous Bandersnatch but I did used to draw what I thought a Fruminous Bandersnatch looked like um, and what is that I used to think that a fruminous bandersnatch was a little bit like, like a a really sort of it had like a really sort of shaggy bear face. Okay. Like, and it used I used to imagine it like bounding about the place, because in my head I I think I went for like snatch, like it was like a little like scavenger thing sort of. Okay. Like it would like it would like bounder about the place and like snatch little things up and then like carry on bounding. <laughs> Because I also used to, I also used to draw what I thought job. Um, oh, what's the name of the tree? Oh, the tum tum tree. Okay. I used to draw it like it has like a really, really round bottom that goes up into quite a thin peak. So it looked like a, and then like loads and loads of bushy leaves. So it looked like a really fat guy. Okay. You know, like some like a like a little tree with like a pot belly, <laughs> and like and like the the designs on the belly that I used to draw like used to make it look like a smiley face in like the the whorls of the wood. Uh-huh. So it was like a tum tum tree. <laughs> I see. Uh, I see tum tum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so these are like the the language leaps that my brain won. It was like snatch. It's like grabs things. A tum tum tree. It's like a really portly little tree. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the Bandersnatch is in the um, Tim Burton film again. Oh, what's a Bandersnatch like in that version? Like it's like a huge, giant kind of um, cat wolf almost. Like oh. is the best way to describe it. So it's pretty big. So kind of she rides it at one point. So it's kind of it's big, but it's not like huge, huge. Okay. So kind of it's covered in fur and it's got like um um cat ears almost. Okay, Fruminous yeah. Bandersnatch. Yeah, but then um, she ends up kind of teaming up with the Bandersnatch, and it's really, really cool. That sounds good. Yeah. Also, I really want to start using Fruminous Bandersnatch as like an insult now. Are <laughs> you Fruminous Bandersnatch? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my god, he's such a Fruminous Bandersnatch. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm way to go posh with that. 
Just because, well, you know, like, I just feel like it's a posh person insult. <laughs> you know, like, ugh, Terence is such a fruminous bandersnatch. <laughs> I don't know. Such a bandersnatch. <laughs> just captured my imagination. <laughs> I just want to say quickly that um, that was my pointless answer on pointless before. What do you mean? It was words ending with um, TCH, and I was like, bandersnatch. And everyone was like, <laughs> Mark, that's not a real word. And I was like, it also, is. Also, you, you could have just it gone is. with snatch. Yeah, but like you kind of want like a kind of pointless answer. Oh, I answer. suppose you want, you want, okay, I don't really watch pointless. Oh, we're I just also pointless. say Okay. Um. So you want an answer that kind of nobody else is gonna say. This. I now. Now I remember these things. But... Yeah. Yeah. How? I swear, half this podcast is just me being like, I don't really know what this is. <laughs> I don't really do things. <laughs> the, the the amount of stuff I don't know is very large. <laughs> when when Alice is in is in the court. Yes. At the end of the first book, and you've got the whole um trial of the queens. The knave. The knave of hearts who stole some tarts. Does that come from this book, or like? Oh no, that's like, was that's that a poem. A the knave of hearts who stole some hearts, all on a summer day. But um, that's what he references. Loads of all the poems that are in this are all reworkings of poems that would have been at least vaguely well known at the time. Oh, um, a lot of the time, I think it's in is in the first or second book. Like, when she keeps um, trying to say poems, um, but kind of, they come out wrong. Yeah, that's the first one. Yeah. He's sort of parodying, because um, they would have, if you're a child in Victorian times, you would have had to learn a lot of poems like that and that sort of thing. And I think he's sort of taking a bit of a poke at lessons and that sort of thing, and sort of highlighting the silliness of getting children to memorise these ridiculous little poems. Yeah, um, I was going to say, like, um, why would you learn poems? Um, how does that it's, help you? They're supposed to, they're supposed to, like, impart, like, morals to the oh, okay. kids. Like, I think all the poems are supposed to have, you know, like, a moral reasoning to them and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so it was part of school lessons, I think. You just had to, like, learn and memorise these little, like, how doth the little busy bee and all stuff like that. <laughs> so I think he's taking a bit of a jab at it. Okay. Because he does as well in the Looking Glass, the Red Queen is supposed to be a jab at governesses because she's so severe and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I'd think he quite liked poking fun of school lessons so that kids could get a little laugh out of it, I think. Okay, yeah, cool. That makes sense. Um, I think one of the... I think another of the things that I really like, and we've pretty much touched on this quite extensively, is his approach to language and... We have already talked about the language a lot, and I think that's just because it makes up so much of what the book is. It's just that really sort of playful attitude to language. And A, I think it's really good for a children's book to show that you can have fun with language. I think that's really great. Um, But also, I sort of just found it interesting the different ways that different characters approach language. So, you know, like in Wonderland, when she's at the tea party and the hatter is being antagonistic and she says something along the lines of like i meant what i said and he's like oh that you know like, there's a big difference between i say what i mean and i mean what i say like they're two very different things and he goes through that a lot yeah but then later when she's in looking glass and she's talking to humpty dumpty and he's like i define what my words mean you know he very much is she says like oh that's not what that means or whatever and it's like he's like no it means what i say it means because i'm using it and I don't know, I just found it really interesting that there was such a 
range of approaches to language because you have again it like I think it's the white king in the looking glass and he takes language very literally because when Alice is like oh I don't I see nobody on the road and he's mm. like oh you must have great eyesight yeah. I just love all of the different approaches he takes towards being literal or having control over language and that sort of thing I just thought it was a really brilliant aspect yeah um I do really like her conversations um, where the people that she's speaking to kind of take her at her word. Yeah, like extremely literally. Yeah, kind of. So you have like a, like a bunch of kind of like um, fun back and forths where kind of she yeah. can't understand what's going on, but kind of because you've got the time to kind of read it slowly, like I'm um, realizing what they said. Yeah. That you can kind of be like, oh, well, that's kind of clever. But then yeah. kind of you can see it from um, her point of view. Where she's like, wait, what, what, what do you want? Yeah, I think. I think if you were in the situation with just someone you're interacting with that, you'd be like, what is going on? (laughs) But because you're the reader and you have it there in front of you, you can see the clever things he's done. Mm. I just, I like, I like that it's a really popular kids book that shows that you can be creative with language and sort of encourages that love from a young age. Yeah. I like it. Um, And um, I did like that he spent that, that whole chapter with kind of Humpty Dumpty. Where yeah. kind of he went through and kind of said what all the words meant in the poem. Yeah. Like, um, I could have read that chapter for ages, but kind of he just went through the whole poem and just said, <laughs> and this means this, and this means this. Humpty Dumpty's school of literary analysis. And then he falls off every half an hour and dies. And like, oh my yeah. god, King's Men, come on, yeah, come so on. Yeah, like piece them back learn. together again before you can find out what the final stanza means. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing like a sitcom now where kind of you kind of sit there waiting all the time like and he's gonna fall but then he doesn't and then you kind of relax and then and kind of then he falls off and the whole audience Can you imagine laughs. all the students all the students are like come on mate we're trying to get our degree will you just sit on the floor yeah. <laughs> it's like I have a dissertation to write <laughs> I can't be doing with all this <laughs> are you having a yoke oh, oh god Sophie I tried to make a really bad punny joke well you did make a really bad punny joke <laughs> I know, I feel, I feel like I succeeded at my age. I feel no shame. <laughs> um, he's, he being Humpty Dumpty. Yeah. He's a good example of um, when I was reading this as um, something in her mind that was happening in her mind. Like, um, even though the um, second book um, like, is harder to read like that because of how it just feels like she's pretending. Um... She keeps in the second book. She kind of thinks of of this poem, like um, as she meets the characters, and then it happens eventually. But like, it's never something nice. So you've got with um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Um, as soon as she meets them, she kind of thinks of the stanza where they kind of get all dressed up, and then they get kind of snatched away by the big bird. Yeah. But then you kind of start to see it kind of gradually unfolding and kind of coming true. Yeah. So kind of both times with them and with Humpty Dumpty, you kind of like think and hope the whole time that like it's not going to happen. But then you start to see it happening and then kind of it feels like it's really, really tragic because you're watching it like knowing that um, this bad thing's going to happen. But... You don't want it to because it's bad, but you can see all the signs and the kind of pieces coming together. So, from her knowledge of nursery rhymes, there seems to be a like a foreboding. She's able to predict 
not predict the fu- but almost like predict the future sort of she's almost like a CRS in this world because she has this prior knowledge of this literature yeah I don't know it's an interesting aspect it just makes me think of the TV show Flash Forward have you seen that is that one where <sighs> I was just about to give the worst description ever worst I was stuff like, happens and things I was going to say something terribly terrible happens and they're somehow able to like flash forward and see the terrible thing and try and stop the terrible thing. Do they flash forward in Flash Forward? Yeah, like, that was, like, the worst, (laughs) most obvious guess ever. Yeah, um, so kind of, um, I'm in that show, but everyone in the world has a flash forward to, like, a year in the future. A lot of them see something bad happening, because otherwise you wouldn't have a good TV show. Um, so you've got the main character's wife sees herself um, having an affair with a different man. So kind of, um, as the TV show goes on, you see um, her meeting this man and her kind of, like, um, trying to not become friends with him, but kind of, like, gradually all the pieces come together. It just feels like that in the book, because you kind of see, kind of, um, him seeing the rattle, and then kind of them all getting all dressed up, and you think like, um, oh no, god, the bird's coming, the bird's coming, Uh uh-oh. Oh, Alice, what did you do, Alice? Like, it really does feel like she has control over this world. I have a question that is not related to Alice in Wonderland, but it's related to that TV show. Yeah. What happens if they're dead in the future? Well, um, that's a plot point as well. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah, kind of a bunch of people... So kind of, if you don't have a flash forward, then you're like, then, like oh you shit. you should be really worried. Oh shit, am I dead? Okay, okay. And kind of then you get this whole cult that forms around that. So kind of um, everyone who knows that they're going to be dead in a year does these kind of daredevil things, like, because they know they're going to be dead anyway. So, okay. like, so they think, I can do anything I want. So they have a bunch of kind of Russian roulette things that happen, and then kind of, then you kind of led to believe, well, you, you kind of can watch it as everything happens because of the flash forward. Yeah. So kind of they die. Um, they die because they're suddenly being really reckless because yeah. they know that they're going to die. And if they hadn't been reckless, maybe they wouldn't have died. Yeah. So kind of, you, you, um, you've got this whole kind of chain of causality in, yeah. in that TV show. Okay. Kind of like, um, um, what causes what? Kind of, would this have happened otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I was just wondering. Um, it's only one season, and it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it's got a bunch of really, really cool ideas. I remember, I think I remember, like, the adverts when it came out, but I never watched any of it. Shock horror. I don't watch... <laughs> I watch loads of shows, just I'm really bad at watching them when they're actually airing. Well, um, I think it's the kind of, um, um, I like to watch shows that um, get cancelled eventually. Yeah. That seems to be what I do most of the time. I'm like, oh, You do no, do that quite what? a bit. What? Come on, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you cancelling it? Yeah. So, like, you've got um, V and True Calling... Like, um, I want to make you watch True Calling, but I don't because of how poorly it ends. Oh, see, that's what I'm always sad about. Like, I'm what I'm watching Faking It. I'm a little bit behind, but that's just been cancelled, mm. and now I feel really sad because I don't know how how it ends. Yeah, and it's always that thing of like, oh, do I want to? If it's going to be a really bad ending, do I want to know? Yeah, kind of. Um, have a look around first. You'd be like, um, how does this end? Like, yeah, read the last people, episode. And just... People reacting okay? Yeah. Or should I just continue to live in my world of blissful ignorance? Yeah. So it's kept a bit vague in the books. But um, do you think that there's, 
like a crossover um between the um two worlds in the two books. Do you mean because of the um Hatter and Hager? Yeah. Um. So for um most of the second book, um, you kind of read it like it's a different world. Well, um, I did at least because like you kind of don't see anything that's in the first book for a long time. And then, yeah. Um. And then you've got um Hare who shows up, which is spelt like Hager. Okay, that was a bad move on my part, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, um, he says that the kind of it's said like mare. Oh yeah. So it's hair, but kind of he um doesn't ever actually um describe the runner, like he just calls him hair. So you're like, yeah, huh, hair. And then you've got the other squire slash wherever he is later, um, called Hatta, H A T T A. Yeah. Who's got a cup of tea and a slice of bread, and that's all you really get as well. I wonder if it's maybe a little throwback on his part. Yeah. But I don't know, because obviously authorial intent, the only person who really knows what the intent of the author was is him, and he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> and also, authorial intent, in my opinion, has a... It has like an end point, so like you as reader are free. Once a writer has written a book, it goes out into the world, and the reader is free to interpret it however they want to, yeah. given enough textual evidence. Yeah. So part of me is like, oh, I wonder if it's just like a little throwback on his part. But then also, maybe it's enough to come up with a hypothesis where you say actually these worlds are connected. If we go back to our beginning, like multiple reality argument mm-hmm. what so it's then a parallel it world could just be another manifestation of that okay what so you could imagine like a third book where she goes in and she sees like a different just like how we were saying about in the first book you have marianne who is like that universe's incarnation of alice mm-hmm. maybe they are this universe's incarnations of the hatter and hare don't know if that if other people would say that that holds water but it's a fun thing to yeah, well, speculate yeah. about yeah. so um if you had to um come up with a third world now what do you mean by third world like another one for her to go to yeah so kind of because the first one is kind of dream themed it's a lot of kind of dream logic of kind of of course she does this next and like like why wouldn't she do that next the first one is cards, if you take it down to okay, its yeah. like visual narrative, and the second one is chess, yeah. if you take it down to its visual narrative. So, what the so third I one wonder if there's like a third, you know, like a sort of. Ooh, um, how about like um, if we're staying um, um, on kind of um, old-fashioned kind of tabletop games, then you could think of it um, of a world like checkers or drafts. Yeah, like something like that. Something that a child of that time would have had access to. Yeah. Because if you're interpreting it as she's drawing on the world around her and creating these fantasy worlds based off of that or whatever, mm-hmm. like just something that has enough substance to it that you could create a world out of it, but that's also basic enough that it's accessible to a child. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of drafts could um, tie too much back into, so the goal is to kind of make her be a king at the end. Yeah, it might be too similar to what's happening with chess. Um, you could have, like, um, Othello, Othello. Um, that one um, when you put a circle on kind of either side, then you capture that area, like, in between. You have a much more in-depth knowledge of old child <laughs> games than me. <laughs> I played them with my grandparents a lot at the house. 
Okay. <laughs> oh, you could have like a Domino's world. Um, how'd that work? What? So kind of she's kind of building a bridge. Know. I don't know. I was I was just going for childhood games. <laughs> what kind of? Um, I was thinking from the point of view of Othello, Othello, have you say it? Um, so you could have it as kind of the kind of Red Queen versus White Queen thing that's in the um, Tim Burton film, where the kind of pieces in between kind of represent like a region that's been captured. It would keep going back and forth between the two kind of rulers. Yeah. Where kind of the kind of battle would kind of eventually move round the board, and kind of different regions would be captured and would change, like um, based on who's owning them. That sounds interesting. I think we should throw it out there if anyone who's listening has any ideas of what would make a good basis for a third world slash story. Yeah. Do let us know. Yeah. Because I don't have much knowledge of childhood games, apparently. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, Cluedo. It's like Cluedo's just a murder mystery, Sophie. <laughs> Not work. very good. And then I'm like, Monopoly would be the most dull book ever. <laughs> Can we stop yet? Is everyone bored yet? Can we stop? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do we hate each other enough yet? Yeah. Can we just call it a day? Um, as well as the book, um, one thing that I've read that I think is worth noting, um, if only to kind of um talk about derisively, is. <laughs> Um, it's the comic that's kind of published by Zenescope, Zenoscope, that's a publisher that's known for its kind of um, cheesecake um, covers. Um, do you know that term? No, I'm imagining a literal cheesecake right now. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit confused, but it sounds delicious. <laughs> no, it's not delicious. Um, <gasps> imagine if you get a comic printed on a cheesecake. Well, so you kind of have to yeah, read like, it. Like quickly. they have to be limited in length, but it's like, you know, like it's, both food and entertainment. Well, so kind of each layer. So kind of now I'm picturing like a cake that's kind of in layers where you have like a page on each layer of cake. I'm literally going for like a one page comic. Okay. And it's like, you know how you can print on like marshmallows and stuff now? Really? And cake. Yeah. Okay, well. It's like a cheesecake comic. <laughs> like a thin cheesecake comic. <laughs> no, no. It's like a subscription service. I think that'd be great. <laughs> like take a while to get through the plot, but it would be delicious. <laughs> what kind of one cheesecake a week? Yeah, or like monthly, you know, if you want to spread it out. Okay. But you know, like quite quite like a long, like an A4 size. Uh, okay. That, that's a lot of cheesecake. Well, you know, but if you give me time, I'll I'll eat an entire A4 size cheesecake. <laughs> you know. Um in comics or I think it's kind of four kind of pin-ups from the 40s and 50s. So it's kind of normally women um, who are posed in like really kind of awkward poses, whereas kind of like um, deep cut shirt or like kind of standing so like with their ass poking pin up out. Yeah, style vintage pinup. Yeah, but kind of um, more lewd than that. Okay. So kind of cheesecake art um, means that um, there's a lot of kind of um, ass shots and kind of like <laughs> um, bending forward boob shots. Delightful. Yeah. It's a publisher that's that's kind of known for doing that. Okay. So kind of, it's not got a very kind of good reputation from lots of comic readers for that reason. Okay. But um, I got the comic um that was like three hundred pages for a pound, and I was like, oh well, that's like amazingly cheap. Is that because of the quality? Well, um, I started reading it, and it starts. Um, it's set with kind of Alice as an adult, and she's got a husband. And two kids. But um, it takes 
the kind of interpretation that um, I've said that I read the books with and kind of goes like way, way too far with it. (laughs) So she's kind of mentally deranged at this point in her life because of her life in Wonderland and because she's kind of, kind of nobody believes her and kind of all of that. Okay. Um, but she makes friends with this like white rabbit who she kind of sits and talks to. It sounds like a very dark interpretation. And the comic is set around Alice's daughter, who then like finds her way into Wonderland, and kind of um, basically um, everyone that she meets is trying to rape her the whole time. Oh my god! Like, and it's really, really, really dark. So she meets the kind of caterpillar who in this world is like a millipede. But kind of, um, he also tries to rape her. This sounds like an unnecessary it is. thing to exist. Yeah. I never I never read any books that I love and think, you know what this could do with a little bit more rape in <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. I've never that's never what I want from my fiction or life in general. Yeah. Um you would think that um that's just like a really kind of dark, dark reading of the book. Um but the fact that it's framed where kind of um the whole time she's kind of like bending forward and kind of showing her boobs in the camera. Oh. So it kind of it mixes the sex and the rape in really kind of um uncomfortable ways. We're like um they're kind of condemning it but they're also kind of supporting it at the same time. Like and you're just like what's going on? Oh my god, this is awful. Yeah, that makes me feel uncomfortable just hearing about it. And it's just like um, I couldn't get past the first two issues. That seems that seems reasonable. I feel I feel like <laughs> this is this is us warning the world. Yeah. Um. Don't read the comic because it's just it's just awful. Do not consume this media. No. Um. Don't even pay, like um. I paid a pound for it, <laughs> and like um, and a pound was too much. Like um, I still want my money back. <laughs> oh dear. Um. At the end of each episode, we each assign a number of flailings to the thing that we've been discussing. Um, how many flailings do you give Alice in Wonderland, Sophie? Oh my god, how many flailings do I give Alice in Wonderland? Um, I'm going to go for maybe an 8. Okay. Or a 7.5. Are you doing um just the book or the concept as a whole? Well, that's the question, isn't it? I think I'm going to go 8 for book and concept included. Okay, yeah. Because although it's something that I am not so passionately enthusiastic about anymore, I mm-hmm. still, having looked back, I think it has had quite a big impact on my the things I find visually appealing and I really do like the ideas and blah, blah, blah. I think I did overdo it ever so slightly, <laughs> which I think is why I'm like, ooh... <laughs> Is it an eight? But I think overall, if I look at it properly, objectively, I do think it's very good. So that's okay. that. Um, I think I would give it um eight point five flailings. Um, because I really like the idea of it. Like, um, I've been saying for years that I should actually read the books because I, I'm so like I'm into the idea of it being so kind of nonsensical and still fun. Yeah. Like, um, and the way that you see its effects on like so much of culture yeah that you can see um how kind of influential it is and how strange and unique it is that kind of so many things afterwards some um, have tried to kind of replicate but you never really find anything that can do it in this way yeah which i really like okay 
And that's the end of this episode of You Know What I Like. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and please leave us a rating and a review. Um, it helps other people find the show, and we'd really love to, to be able to flail at more people. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to us ramble, and please follow the podcast on Twitter at YKWILpodcast, essentially just spell out, you know what I like, initials, then add podcast on the end, or drop us an email at YKWILpodcast at gmail.com. Come back next month where we'll get overly excited about Final Fantasy. See you then! Fabulous. I'm going to stop recording I'm, now. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop recording now. Fabulous. Fabulous. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop recording now. Fabulous. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop recording now. <laughs>